0: Amen. God bless you guys. Pull out your notes if you don't already have them out and your Summit Church app if you want to follow along. I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you in just a second. But before I do, um, Lisa and I were at lunch last week at this place we go to on every Monday and we've gotten to know a lot of people in there. And uh, we become uh, acquaintances at best with them. And uh, we all kind of know each other to some degree. And we've gotten to know a man who's a a emergency room doctor. And uh, the more that we've gotten to know each other, the more comfortable he's become in sharing his thoughts and feelings. And this last week, we had this uncomfortable exchange in which we asked, uh, hey, we haven't seen you for a while. How's everything been going? Been busy at the hospital? And he said, I'm on suspension right now. And I said, oh, what happened? And he began to tell a story of how he was treating someone and these are all life-threatening injuries. It's emergency room for the most part, it's all uh, trauma. And he happened to have a uh, type of blood, I believe it was a positive that they were in short supply of. And he was treating a patient and someone came in and said, we need some of that. Uh, It looked as if maybe he had taken the whole supply in case it was needed. And they came in and said they needed it. And he inquired as to who it would be going to. And they said that someone had been brought in and was in need of it. And it turns out the person was, at least in his estimation, not a citizen, couldn't even speak English were his words. And he told them, no, you can't have the blood. And they fought and they argued and he continued to kind of tell this story to uh, some very confused faces as Lisa and I just continued to look at each other and look at him. And, and he said something to the effect uh, to Lisa, uh, after he said, um, I'm not gonna give up blood for someone who's not even a citizen. And He looks at, I was watching Lisa's hands to make sure she hadn't grabbed any sharp objects or (laughs) utensils or chopsticks and fashioned them into a shiv. And he said, "Uh, I can tell you didn't like that. And uh, I just kept saying, well, let us know how that all turns out. Let us know how that all turns out. And he kept talking and I feel like at this point he was trying to rationalize and justify what he said. And I said, They were both life-threatening injuries, right? And he said, oh, well, yeah. And I just shook my head. In in his mind, it was either or. You couldn't save both lives. You couldn't risk dividing that blood and making sure both patients got it and both were treated. I mean, he took a Hippocratic oath. Doesn't matter whether they're a citizen or not, whether they can speak English or not. Even if they were a criminal. Because a doctor's commitment, a doctor's oath is to do no harm, to save life. And I said, they were both life-threatening injuries. In other words, why have to choose either or? Why not just choose life for both? And I thought how interesting that he thought of that as a zero-sum game. It's either this person lives or this person dies. And in his mind, this was the better choice. This was the right choice to make. And that's what a really good would-you-rather is made up of. Cole, when he was little, our middle son, he would do would-you-rathers. But they were always like, would you rather die in a car accident or have ice cream for dinner every night? And we're like, uh think probably ice cream would be my choice. So we had to kind of explain, Cole, it's, it's, it's two either really bad situations you gotta choose from or two good situations. It's making the choice hard, not, not super, super obvious. And we've come to, in our culture, in our society, everything's a would you rather. And we feel like we have to make a black and white choice of this or that. It has to be binary. You can't be anywhere in the middle. Candidates that once ran for office that were moderate have no chance now. You have to be extreme left or extreme right to get the attention of the radical thinking that doesn't want things to be uh, uh, anywhere in the gray. It wants them to be definitively right or definitively left. Everything is a would you rather. I want to read this passage of scripture to you that you're very familiar with by now. I'm sure Matthew 7, 1 through 5 says this, don't judge others and God will not judge you. This is Jesus teaching. If you judge others, though, you notice that he starts and just says, don't do it. But if you're going to do it, just know how it works. If you judge others, you will be judged the same way you judge them. By who? The answer is God will treat you the same way you treat others. Why do you notice the small piece of dust that's in your friend's eye, but you don't notice the big piece of wood that's in your own? Why do you say to your friend, let me take that piece of dust out of your eye? Look at yourself first. You Still have that big piece of wood in your own eye. You are a hypocrite. First take the wood out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to get the dust out of your friend's eye. Jesus teaches a very important principle that you and I should steer clear of judging. Each other. One another. People. He said because it's a a minefield you don't want to step into because... Unless you are going to simply extend grace, if you judge people on any level, just know that that judgment's going to be turned back to you by God. And he says, then he says this very illustrative uh, parable, this story of, 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 of what it looks like when you and I get into the game of judging. He says that we have distorted perception. We believe that we have the righteousness and capacity to call out small things in someone's life. The reason is, is because we perceive that our righteousness is big and our sin is small. And we perceive that their righteousness is small, but their sin is big. We have a major perception problem. We think we're qualified to help people when in fact, we have all the work to do in our own lives first. Jesus says, my gosh, the fact that you think you can judge someone, especially for a small thing in their life, when you've got a plank of wood hanging out of your own, work on that. And here's, the, here's, the, uh, here's maybe the moral that we don't teach all the time. Is that in order to get a plank of wood out of your eye, it's gonna be painful, it's gonna take a while. I don't know if you whittle from one end, if you pull, high. I don't know how you get a plank out of your eye. People think that Jesus was this very floaty and serious. Jesus is telling this hilarious story right? And you've got this telephone pole hanging out of your eye and he's probably picked up a log from somewhere and he's walking around with it. And people are imagining now the hypocrisy of somebody who could call out dust in a friend's eye while doing, having a plank of wood in their own eye. He says, you just have this distorted sense that you're righteous enough to tell other people how to live your lives or live their lives. And he was speaking hopefully so that the Pharisees could overhear. So that the crowd understood what it looked like to categorize people and to judge people and to condemn people when really none of us stand in the position to be able to do it. Maybe, maybe we get to a point where it's just dust in our eye and it's just dust in their eye. But at the end of the day, you still got to get the dust out of your eye first. That's when Jesus says, maybe then you can start judging people. Fill this into your notes. Knowing that God's going to judge me by the way I judge others, we're going to do some would you rathers. Would I rather, number one, be in the right or get it right? Be in the right or get it right. So early on, studies show that We're taught the benefits and the rewards of being right. We are praised when we get something right. We're celebrated when we get something right. We're cheered on when we get something right at home and in the classroom. And oh my gosh, the embarrassment and even humiliation of when you get something wrong. I mean, they do it better, I think, in classrooms now. But there was a day when it was just totally appropriate to kind of ridicule someone if they came to the board or the teacher called on them and they answered it wrong. It was fine to just kind of mock that person and ridicule them and belittle them for getting it wrong. So we would rather say nothing or we would even rather say that we're right and fight to convince others that we're right rather than suffer the indignity of being wrong. And we learn at a very early age that from watching our parents when they argue with each other and watching adults at the cash register when they've been overcharged for an item by the cashier, or anyone else that uh, a politician that appears on a television show or pundits that argue on news shows, That the more right you are, the more convinced that you're right, the louder you should say so. After all, to be right is to be loud. And if you're loud, you must be right. One thing you never really hear anyone say is that you can actually be right about something without doing what's right. Let me say that again, you can be right. You can be factually right and still not be doing what's right. And that's exactly what Jesus taught. That it is possible to be right, to say the right things, to quote the right things, to be factually right and still not be doing the right things. Jesus pointed out that the Pharisees and other religious experts were the ones who knew more about scripture. They knew more about how God was described and what God required than anyone else. They were better at practicing the rituals and doing religious things that made them appear as if they were as righteous as you can possibly be. They had those behaviors down better than anyone else. Yet, he pointed out they could not be further from actually being right, doing the right thing. He once said they were like beautiful tombstones that had rotting bones in the grave. They were like a cup that was polished on the outside but disgusting on the inside. He showed that knowing what was right and saying what was right and being right was a far cry from actually doing what was right. And this is what he says in Matthew 5, 20 through 22. And then we pick back up in 20, 27 to 28. He says, unless you, in front of these Pharisees, it says, unless you people though, do far better, do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. You're familiar with the commandment to the ancients Do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. And you know the next commandment pretty well too. Don't go to bed with another's spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue by simply staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust and even quicker than your body can. Those ogling looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Jesus told the crowd that you're getting familiar with scripture, you're doing well, you're learning all the lines, you're, you're, you're hearing all the messages, you're, you're getting the knowledge that it takes to listen, to make a good argument, to prove your point, to make people feel bad about themselves because you've shown them the scripture that says what they're doing is sin. You've got all of what it takes to actually be right in those moments. But unless you do better than the experts of Scripture, than the most knowledgeable of Scripture, you see, there's nobody that knows the Bible better than these men do. And unless you do better behaving better than them, you don't know any more about the kingdom of God than they do. Jesus said, the law tells you don't murder, but I'm telling you there's more to it than that. You can get away with not murdering anyone goes through their life practically without murdering anyone, but he's saying there's more to it. There's the heart, the spirit of the law, which is don't hate enough to get you to the place of murder. And he says, you think you're virtuous and you're righteous because you haven't slept with someone else's wife or husband, bravo, most people don't. But how many of you have lusted after someone else's wife or husband? You see, that's what it means to be right, not just to do, or, or to, yeah, to, to, to do what's right, not just to be right. You can make the arguments, you can criticize people, you can judge people, you can use the Bible, to slam people and to abuse people and to beat up on people and clobber people over the head with passages that likely you actually know little about. Right? We learn most of what we learn from memes and bumper sticker theology from a TikTok that we saw. And we go, yes, I can, I, I'm gonna remember that and I'm gonna say that because that will make me sound like I know what I'm doing. And when someone says something, I will have that to say back to them. And Jesus says, just don't focus on being right, focus on doing what's right. Secondly is this, knowing God will judge me by how I judge others I'm going to ask a really quick question. Is it as warm out there as it is up here? Okay. Can we just get you to tap one of the ACs? We'll let them battle it out. And if, uh, tap this one, make this one cooler. And if you're cold, go to that side of the room. How about that? (laughs) Knowing God will judge me by how I judge others. Would I rather, number two, be a guardian of justice or a champion of grace? So in a Yale study, researchers found that people are inclined to punish others or as often, maybe more often today, work to see others get punished by someone else, even though they haven't been personally harmed. In other words, we like seeing people get punished even if whatever they did had no impact on us. Is it that we're because we're so morally outraged that someone's, someone's offense or their behavior, that it, it, it offended us so, so we want to see justice prevail. Is it because we want to see good win over evil? Is it because that without punishment and consequence there can't be justice? It turns out that none of those things are the motivators. It turns out that we engage in what researchers called third party justice because we want to earn what they call trust points. In other words, we've become a cancel culture, we boycott companies, we protest, we become whistleblowers because we believe on a subconscious level that when we want someone to be punished, that when we wanna see justice done, that when we vocalize how we wanna see a wrong made right, it makes us more trustworthy to other people, more honest, more virtuous, and more moral. In other words, we don't actually care about justice. We care about how others perceive us because of how we respond to letting someone off the hook or judging somebody, making sure somebody gets punished. On the other hand, research shows that we are extremely reluctant reluctant to show grace. Because if we show grace, then the offender won't understand what they did is wrong and they won't uh, stop doing the bad behavior. They won't feel the appropriate shame or guilt or remorse for their sin. They won't experience the kind of discomfort or pain that comes from consequences or maybe even the discomfort or pain that comes Because of what they did to us, we want them to feel that and sometimes we just want to have the moral high ground because by comparison, we feel morally better than them. We feel superior to those who fail. One of my top five moments in the Bible is a story that I use quite a bit. Jesus takes on the the spiritual hall monitors, the self-righteous, the letter of the law legalist who love to call out people's sin, who love to chase justice in the name of God. That same kind of legalism that poisoned the Jewish faith and unfortunately is poisoning modern Christianity. It's a great story out of John 8, 1 through 11. It's in other the Gospels as well, but Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, the translation says it was at sunrise that he was back at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Isn't that the way we love to do it? Teacher, they said to Jesus. Other translations will say rabbi, which was a teacher, Jewish teacher. This woman was caught, caught. Because Jewish law did require that there were witnesses. So somehow they were watching this woman or this man possibly close enough that they were able to walk in on them. That's how far we'll go. This woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses, the law by which the Jews lived, says to stone her, what do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned, throw that first stone. And then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. In other words, the most experienced in sinning until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then listen to this. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I, go and sin no more. It translates to mean go and stop living in that lifestyle of sin. Here's what I love about this. Let me, let me first, I wanna say there are some things that are factually true. Factually, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, he was a teacher which meant he taught the law and the words of the prophets. So he was obliged as a rabbi to honor the truth of the law. Secondly, there was no doubt this woman was caught in adultery. She wasn't uh, set up, not at least in the, in the way that she wasn't guilty. Uh, they may have set her up and had someone do this so they could set Jesus up, but she did, in fact, sleep with someone other than her husband. So she was guilty of adultery and factually just as well, the law of Moses did prescribe among a lot of other things that if you were guilty of a thing, including dishonoring your parents, idolatry, witchcraft, that you should be stoned to death. Though it rarely, rarely ever really happened. And factually, if Jesus had said, Come on guys, do we actually do this? We don't stone people who've been caught in adultery. Let give her a break. He would have been discredited as a rabbi. He would have been accused of blasphemy. He would have lost all credibility. So instead Jesus does something really really magical. He takes the spotlight off of her sin. He doesn't deny she did it. He doesn't deny the law of Moses. And he just broadens the beam so that not just her is caught in the light of exposure, but every single person in that crowd. And Jesus says, any one of you who is righteous in the eyes of God, you should definitely stone the unrighteous. Any of you that is without sin and without sin that requires the same punishment, you should execute first. Lead us, please, in your righteousness to do this. And when none of them did, Jesus does something additionally magical. He says, where are all of these people that have made you feel so bad about yourself? who thought they were qualified to condemn you, where have they gone? Are they still here? Are they still able to judge you? Because I want you to hear this. We are so good at keeping people from God because we're so good at making them feel far from God. If you wanna keep pushing the world, not, not you, I'm speaking to the church, capital C global church. If we want to keep pushing the world further and further and further from God, let's make sure that every time they do something that's ungodly, we get out there on social media, in the pulpits, in the streets, and we let them know how truly horrible they really are. But let's make sure also we present ourselves as the righteous as the ones who are qualified to do just that, as the ones who should have stones in our hands. And let's let's make sure that we put the death nail into the life of the church because a God that went to the extent and the lengths of sending his son to die for every single person cannot be pleased with the church who would rather have a stone in their hand than grace in their words. We can either be judges of people, we can either be guardians of justice, or we can be champions of grace. You can't do both. And, and, and I'm gonna help every single one of us out. Only one of those jobs was given to us to do. God said, let me worry about justice, you worry about grace. Number three is this. Knowing God will judge me by how I judge others. Would I rather tell Jesus what he can do or just do what Jesus does? Now, faith is deeply, um, I just want to double check. We're good on the clip. I'm, hit, I'm seeing thumbs up. So, um, faith is personal. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing how personal faith is. But let's also recognize that faith is mostly talked about learned, experienced, shared, encountered in a community setting. This is a faith community. In other words, that you probably have faith because someone Impacted you with their own faith, a parent, a grandparent, a, a city you lived in, a, a friend you had that invited you to church, somehow someone else's faith was infectious enough to get you exploring your own faith. As a result of that, that can be a very, very good thing. I think when you're in a healthy, mature, thriving grace, uh, faith community, that you are benefiting more than anything else from that faith community but i also know that faith communities can turn into places in which we're not just sharing beliefs but we are establishing beliefs that we believe god has approved of and then it slips even further into a place where not only does god approve of it but we believe that god has mandated us to spread this set of beliefs that god wants us To establish and we need to defend that and we need to be passionate about that and we need to make sure that nobody defiles that and, and, and we need to make sure that this is seen as the, the way of worshiping God or the way of believing God or the way of preaching, right? That's why we have so many denominations. Even within the Baptist community, there are countless factions of Baptists. Within the Pentecostal community, there's countless factions of Pentecostalism. Within mainline churches, there's Lutheran and Methodist and Episcopal and the Church of Christ, and there's just so many different expressions. And what it really boils down to is that we have beliefs that we want to wrap Jesus around. We need him to validate our belief system. And so we can make scripture work to validate, because all of those denominations I talked about use the same exact Bible. All the same scriptures to do what they need it to do. And if you think I'm being cynical, I wanna show you what's happening in the church in America today. Take a look at this clip I ran
1: across. I'm to the place right now, if you vote Democrat, I don't even want you around this church, you can get out. You can get out, you demon. You can get out, you baby butchering election thief. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. I don't care how mad that makes you. You get pissed off as you want to. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. They are God-denying demons that butcher babies and hate this nation. They hate this nation. Get mad all you want to. I don't care if you stand. I don't care if you throw tomatoes, praise God. I'm about to throw a microphone up in his house. CNN can eat my dirty socks. You cannot be a Democrat and a Christian. You cannot. Somebody say amen. Amen. The rest of you, get out. Get out. Get out in the name of Jesus. I ain't playing your stupid games. Yeah. Yeah. So, um...
0: Greg Locke happens to be really fiercely popular on social media. And he recently had a movie in theaters uh, called um, Come Out in the Name of Jesus, or In Jesus' Name, Come Out, something like that. It's not worth looking up. But um, the whole premise is that he's got a deliverance ministry in which he helps deliver people from demon possession. And just to help you understand him a little bit further, he believes that uh, the type of people that are demon possessed or if you have autism or epilepsy or other neurological um, disabilities that you're not in need of medical attention or anything like that. You're in need of uh, demonic deliverance. So he's clearly an idiot. <laughs> I don't say that about a lot of people, but he's clearly an idiot. And the problem is that he's been able to make more idiots Right, because, because whatever it is we believe has the ability to be weaponized and, and turned into a, 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 a virus that we can spread if we do it convincingly enough. Listen, I know that people have passionate feelings about political issues and that not everything that happens in our nation, we're supposed to feel excited about as followers of Christ and that we can't have opinions on moral issues. What I'm saying is that that's blatant stupidity. It's neo-legalism. It's neo-pharisaical theology that says you can't do this and be a Christian. You can't call yourself this and be a Christian. That was exactly what they were doing with the law. Let me, let me do a little bit further of a history clip of, of just what we have done early in the church. You couldn't be a Christian and eat unclean foods. You couldn't be a Christian and dress a particular way or wear your hair a particular way or men had to be circumcised. And I will tell you a much more difficult process later in life than it is when you're an infant. And they were calling men to be circumcised so that they could call themselves Christians. You couldn't even be of a certain ethnicity and call yourself a Christian according to many in the early church. From the 11th through 13th century European Christians carried out what are known as the Crusades where violence was used against not only Muslims but Jews to reclaim holy sites like Jerusalem and other sacred sites. During the 15th through 17th century, tens of thousands of people, mostly women, by the way, were accused of being witches. They were tortured, tried in sham trials, and then executed, all in the name of religious purity. In Spain, from the 15th to 19th century, there was the Spanish Inquisition, which was organized and relentless. It was a church campaign to out those who were violating church orthodoxy. They were trying to suppress religious dissent. They were trying to expose what they were calling heresy by identifying, torturing, and forcing them into conversion before they executed them, so that no one else would dare speak out against the church in Spain. I guess my point is this, we have an amazing capacity as an organized body of faith to believe things and say things and do things in the name of Christ that are universes away from the way Christ actually believes says or does anything at all but we wrap him around us we do things in his name so that we can get away after all God must be angry, he must be wrath-filled, he must be ready to wipe out the planet because that's how we feel. And I can find you passages that make God seem angry and wrath-filled and ready to wipe out the world. I can take those out of context and I can exclude the entire new covenant or God's grace is the drum that he pounds over and over and over through Jesus, through his words, through his behavior. Matthew 9, 1 through 8 says this. Back in the boat, Jesus and the disciples recrossed the sea. Uh, back in the boat, Jesus and the disciples recrossed the sea to Jesus's hometown. They were hardly out of the boat when some men carried a paraplegic on a stretcher. And set him down in front of them. And Jesus, impressed by their bold belief, said to the paraplegic, Cheer up, son. I forgive your sins. Some religion scholars whispered, Why, that's blasphemy. Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, Why this gossipy whispering? (laughs) Which do you think is simpler to say, I forgive your sins or get up and walk? Well, just so that we're clear that I'm the son of man and authorized to do either or both. In other words, I can forgive sin or I can heal or I can do both of those at the same time. At this, he turned to the paraplegic and said, get up, take your bed and go home. And the man did it. The crowds were awestruck, amazed and pleased that God had authorized Jesus to work among them in this way. This is a perfect portrayal of how closely someone can stand to Jesus, have Jesus right in front of them and not realize they're witnessing God himself. He's healing a man and they want to get into a theological debate. Or he's forgiving a man of his sins and they want to get into a theological debate. They can't stand that Jesus is operating outside of their parameters for how God operates. So instead of recognizing that they're wrong about God, they just say, you're not God. You have to change the way you behave or we disqualify you from being God. There are preachers who preach against what I'm preaching against right now. There are people who say what I'm telling you just gives you permission to sin. You already have permission to sin. You don't need my permission to sin. You've always been able to sin. The morons who haven't read the Bible forget that God gave us permission to sin. That's why Adam and Eve sinned. Because we've always had the ability to do it. They just want God to go back to opening up the earth and letting people go into it and fall into fire. They want God flooding the planet again. They want God rationalizing and justifying their hatred for humankind. But Jesus... Jesus was always in the face of those who thought they knew what God looked like. You can be so close to him in proximity and get him so wrong. It's like we don't want Jesus forgiving people. It's like we don't want him accepting all people. It's like we don't want grace available to everybody. What is the matter with the follower of Christ who still wants to be angry at the world? What is the matter with the follower of Christ who still doesn't want more and more people to discover him? What's the matter with the follower of Christ who doesn't empathize and sympathize with someone who is captivated and enslaved by sin, whose mind has not yet experienced the freedom of thinking with the mind of Christ? What is the matter with the church who wants to shame the world instead of offer hope and grace to the world? That is exactly what Pharisees were guilty of. I want to ask you a question though, before we end right here, we're going to receive communion as a symbol of what we're going to do here in the next few moments. But I want to ask you this question. What is it that you're doing or thinking, believing, saying, acting out? What is it that you're doing because you think God is in your corner? What belief do you have? What thing do you say to people? How are you acting out because you believe God's okay with it? But in reality, you'll admit that it doesn't represent the heart of God. It doesn't represent his mind. It doesn't represent his mission of extending grace through what Jesus did on the cross. It just helps you achieve your political platform or your moral outrage or your righteous indignation about a thing or a person or a group or a topic. But you know, it's not what Jesus would be doing in the same moment, in the same situation, in the, in the same circumstance that you're in. He would just do it Jesus-y. He would say something loving. He would sing, don't worry about it. I forgive you. He would say, I want to see the suffering you're in come to an end. He would want them to experience hope and freedom and grace and life because the Son of Man came not wanting that any should perish, but all to have eternal life. So we have to stop being right and just start doing what's right. And that begins with just letting God care about meeting out justice and vengeance and settling the score. Let's just be champions of grace, 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 because we are not ambassadors of God's justice. We are ambassadors of his grace. And then honestly, don't wrap your beliefs in Jesus. Empty yourself. Empty yourself of what you believe and what you think and what you know is right because you can learn everything that the Pharisees learned and still not recognize that Jesus is right in front of you. How about this? Get to know him. Know him, embrace him, love him, spend time with him, pray to him and listen to him and do him, be him, say him, think him. Make Jesus the core of your existence and I promise you, You'll know what you need to know. The Holy Spirit will lead you into the word and through the word and and all the things that you think are so important to quote and to recite. I'm going to tell you something. I have a degree in the Bible. I rarely know what passage I'm quoting, where it's from. I'm like, you know, the Bible says, and they go, oh yeah, where does it say that? I don't know, actually, at all. Do you think Jesus is scoring whether I can quote chapter and verse, which came 1500 years after the Bible was written? No. Do you think Jesus cares whether I'm doing that stuff? Yeah. Do you think Jesus cares whether I know the, the, the type of stone that he stood on when he preached on the Mount of Olives? Only if it impacts what he was saying and who he was saying to it and what it was supposed to mean, but otherwise it feels like maybe a waste of knowledge. If I don't know the heart and mind of Jesus more than I know what kind of cloth he wore and his robe and whether he had Birkenstocks or whatever on his feet. I'm gonna have the ushers come forward with the elements of communion. If someone could bring me one as well, I want thank you Pastor Dan Um, I want this to be as close as we can get it to when Jesus, um, you can begin to hand those out, thank you, I'm sorry Um, as close as we can get it to be to what Jesus meant it to be Um, if you're already beginning to take the elements. make sure you peel that thin, clear cellophane off first. That's going to get you to the wafer. If you do it the other way, you might still be opening it while we're all going out to lunch. <laughs> so Jesus gathered with them and hoped that he could communicate the importance of who he was and what he was doing and leave an impression with them that would last beyond that moment. To take something practical and daily and make it to where they can't not think about what he said. And in the moment that Jesus sat with him or sat with his disciples, he taught them that the bread that they were eating, and it didn't look anything like this, it was unleavened, it was flat bread, but I'm sure they tore pieces off, took a chunk, passed it down, kind of like a basket of bread we'll share at a restaurant, tore it off and shared pieces, and it was like their potatoes of the day. Bread was with everything, and they would, they would dip it in stuff, and they would eat their stuff with it, and it was very, very common. They would really almost never have a meal that bread wasn't present. Jesus loves carbs is what I'm trying to tell you. (laughs) So he tears off a piece of his bread and he says, this, this is me. It's my body, but I, I want you to understand that my body is gonna be broken. It's gonna be torn and shattered and abused for a purpose. It's for healing. It's for wholeness. I have to be broken so that you and everyone who follows, everyone who hears what I've taught, they can be whole too. Jesus didn't do that so that we could keep people further from him. Jesus didn't do this to enable us to judge the world, but to win the world with a message of hope and grace. He said, every single time you eat bread, I want you to think I am breaking the body of Christ. That's symbolic of what Jesus did for me so that I don't ever make it through a bologna sandwich or a PB and J or an Italian restaurant where I'm eating bread and I can't, I can't get it out of my head. Jesus laid down everything and allowed himself to be destroyed for my sake. Let's eat the bread together. And then he took the wine. Pentecostals would say the grape juice. Because Jesus didn't drink according to them. And he said this. This looks like blood, it's my blood. And it represents a new way of doing things. You've only known the old covenant which required the spilling of innocent blood every single year to make you righteous enough to get you through another season of God's anger and wrath against your sin. But this, this ends it all. When I spill my blood, there will never have to be another blood offering My righteousness, my sinlessness will cover the world. There's enough power in this blood to change the universe forever. And people will not have to jump through hoops or meet your rules and requirements of righteousness. They will be made righteous by no other means than my grace than my offering of forgiveness. And there'll be Christians who stand there and tell Jesus he's not allowed to do that. That's not what the Bible says, Jesus. He says, this is a new covenant. All of that, I have fulfilled it. I've completed it. It doesn't need to be used anymore. I closed it out. This is the new chapter. And that's for you, but it's not just for you, it's for every single person that enrages you, that's been unjust to you, that's offended you, that represents something that you hate, that scares you, that that blasphemes, that's a heretic. All of the, this blood is for Greg Locke and his church too. If I had my way, I would judge. I have judged. I ask for God's forgiveness for judging. I hope God judges me with more grace than I've judged him. I will say that. I've been a harsh judge. It's hard for me. I have far more grace for the world, for unbelievers. I love unbelievers. It's the church I have trouble with sometimes. Because I think sometimes if we put Jesus in the hands of the world and said, you decide who gets to come to him, I think they would all get out of the way and say, well, anybody can come to him. If he is who you say he is, then everyone should come. It's only in the church that we try to hold people back. And it's got to stop. I can't change Greg Locke and his church, but I believe in you. I believe you're the kind of church that wants just that, for more people to know him, not fewer. So let's receive this together. Father, I pray for every single person in this room that we become more like you and less like the Pharisee, that we do what's right instead of worrying about being right, that we become champions who can't say enough good things about grace, can't be any more generous with grace, can't be any more generous with offering, empowering, extending grace, to people who need it. We want to be people who empty ourselves of our beliefs and our thoughts and our convictions that might seem just enough like you that we think you're on board. Instead, we just fill our hearts and our minds and our spirits with everything that you were and everything that you said so that we can be you to a world that still needs you